Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And this is The Ready State. You got it! You better stop it! You got it! You got it! On today's episode of The Ready State, we are delighted to welcome John O'Sullivan of Changing the Game Project. He's the author of two books. The first is Changing the Game, The Parent's Guide to Raising Happy, High-Performing Athletes and Giving Youth Sports Back to Our Kids. And his second book is called Is It Wise to Specialize? We had the great fortune of hearing John talk about a year ago in a little symposium of local coaches and parents trying to unravel this Gordian knot that is and has become youth sports. The the specialization, the professionalization, the crazy parents. How do we untangle this so we can give sports back to our kids? I think his ultimate message is that kids sports are supposed to be fun and he definitely offers some practical tools and strategies for parents and coaches to help uh bring the fun back into youth sports. I tell you what, uh, this conversation is wide raising from how we as parents can improve our game. If you, what to do, if you are a local coach, you know, just being a volunteer for your, your child's soccer game. I am on changing the game every day. Uh, it's in, it's in one of my feeds and I, it's such an incredible resource. And I think hopefully this will uh, flip the script for you and give you some better tools. Enjoy John O'Sullivan. Welcome, welcome, John O'Sullivan. We are so excited to have you today on The Ready State. Just to kick us off, if you could explain to our listeners what Changing the Game Project is and what it is you do. Well, thank you guys for having me. It's always a great opportunity to, I love getting online and getting on podcasts and talking about the work that we're doing. Um, So thank you. And it's also having my own podcast. It's nice just to be a guest and (laughs) not have to prepare as much. (laughs) yeah, so Changing the Game Project was an initiative that I founded back in sort of late 2012, um, basically after being a coach for many years and, and a parent of some young athletes, thinking about, well, how can I share some of this knowledge on a, on a grander scale? Not Certainly not that I know everything, but... Uh, you know, I, I like to research, I like to write. And so I, I ended up writing a book called Changing the Game, which was for parents and uh, starting a blog for parents and coaches and athletes. And that has kind of taken on a life of its own. And now I'm all over the world. I think I just calculated over the weekend, I've flown 150,000 miles this year speaking and presenting uh, about how we can make the youth sports experience, um, more about the needs and values and priorities of the kids and less about the needs, values, and priorities of the adults running the youth sports experience. I think, uh, imagine that. I think if anyone who's listening, who's an adult, we can think clearly back to some of the coaches and seminal experiences we had in youth sports. And if we take that picture, that, that image we have in our brains and actually apply it to the same experience our kids are having, I think there's a big mismatch. Am I, am I right in perceiving that? Cause I have kids and it doesn't feel quite the same thing as when I played three sports a, a season, three sports a year. Yeah, certainly one of the things that I do when I speak, I, to parents, I always ask them, you know, take a minute or two, turn the person next to you and talk about what's different about sports for your kids today than it was for you growing up. And they come up with, very similar things. Um, the costs, the fact that there are no seasons anymore, you know, so early specialization, the massive commitments and, and being forced to pick a single sport very, very young, 
the the differences of of travel you know i grew up in on long island in new york and never at 10 or 11 did it occur to me that i needed to go to california to play some team you know and and things like that and you know and and then one of the other huge ones is just the lack of free play right just meeting your friends at the end of the block to shoot hoops for a while and then go and and you know climb on the construction site next next door to you and uh, you know, play some game of tag or hide and seek or whatever it was, you know, that that's kind of what's missing. You know, I was just telling Juliet, I grew up in Europe and I remember riding my bike. My friends and I would regularly ride our bike past this one soccer field and there would be high school kids playing soccer, maybe young adults. And they would ask us to join in all the time. And there was these spontaneous, incredible international <laughs> soccer games that just happened, you know, spontaneously. And it, it didn't feel magical. It didn't feel remarkable. It was just a, a thing that was happening on, you know, a Tuesday at four. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting about when, when just kids have self-directed, self-organized play as well is there's a, um, a massive effort on their part. Well, a, first of all, you know, they have to problem solve, they have to sort out rules, they have to solve disputes instead of always waiting for adult intervention, but number two, and, and I pay attention to this with my kids who, well, they're in middle school now, but in elementary school at recess, they play soccer all the time or they play football or things like that. And, you know, they always strive to make the teams fair, right? Like they, they don't want one team to win every single game. And so they mix and match and, oh, well, you know, we want a couple. So we gave them this player and things like that. And I always find that interesting because it's really an adult um, impulse to imbalance the teams in our favor. That's so interesting. And I, I just wanted to go back um, to w- what we were talking about earlier, just the difference between what sports was like when we were kids versus how it is today. And just ask you, why do you think it's changed so much? What do you think is different? I don't know that there's a, a perfect answer. You know, uh, I, I always like uh, the woman, uh, Julia Lithcott-Haynes from Stanford in her book, How to Raise an Adult, she, she pinpoints, I think, I think it was in the 80s when the word playdate became part of the Webster's Dictionary. So this idea that play had to be scheduled and organized, and then pretty soon it became something that someone else could run on our behalf, right? Um, it, then you, you have the rise of 24 seven news and sports and video and YouTube and all these, you know, social media forms that make everything so public. That's very easy to compare what's happening to your kids or your young athletes to other athletes all around the world. Right. And, and then, you know, so then you get these outliers like the Williams sisters or a tiger woods and people say, well, if our woods can do that, why can't I do that with my kid? And, and so you have this sort of coming together of, of some massive forces, but no one ever pays attention to the 10,000 wannabe Tiger Woodses that hate golf and hate their dad. <laughs> you know, I, I really appreciate that you say that, you know, that this isn't nefarious, that what we're seeing now may be, in, and we're, we're working with the assumption that maybe that that youth sports, and we haven't said this overtly, but maybe youth sports aren't all that they could be right now, that perhaps they're not living up to potential. And we've definitely seen some worrying trends around 
access to sports and, and socioeconomic relationship to, to organized sports, which I definitely want to get into. So we're working on this assumption that perhaps we can get more out of that. And it's not necessarily nefarious that, you know, or, or overt that people are becoming crazy and we've, we've fetishized sports so much as a culture. And certainly we, in our work, we've seen that we're not surprised that collegiate sports is so professional, given that professional sports are, there's so high stake and so much money and that by extension, we should not be surprised that high school sports have become so professionalized, given that the next step up collegiate sports is professional and ergo the, the, the spin down to our youth sports experience ends up becoming so much more professionalized. What do you think we're getting right? Cause I mean, Juliet and I believe strongly that team sports and youth participation isn't, isn't optional. It's like, there's just too many lessons to be learned about teamwork and play and physicality. Obviously there's something innate and true there. What are we getting right today about youth sports? Well, I think I have to answer that by saying what we really need a a good solid discussion around. And I think I'm going to do a a podcast on this because I've had a back and forth via email with one of the world's leading sports researchers. And I said, well, this is a topic we need to explore further is that um, maybe it's a myth that sports develops character, right? We, we consistently say, oh, we put our kids in sports to develop character, but that's not really the case when we, when we look around or it's not the type of character that we want in our children. Now, sports can develop character if character is intentionally developed by the coaches and the adults in the sporting environment, without a doubt. But certainly doing a handstand does not develop character and certainly being put in a win-at-all-costs uh, youth sports experience does not develop character. And so that might be a, a really interesting starting point of does this actually develop character? Well, yes, only if we do A, B, and C. And so we have to start, you know, as parents asking, hey, do you provide A, B, and C? Because if not, then, you know, I, I shouldn't be working under the illusion of of what this experience is supposed to be about. And, and you know, so, so I, I think we kind of have to start there. Now, like you said, there are some things that are right. And when we talk about the things that have changed in sports that are right, there's certainly way more opportunities for female athletes than there used to be when I was growing up, which is a great thing. There are opportunities, not just obviously on the youth level, but the collegiate level. There's opportunities for females in, in coaching, even though that's a number that's still far too low. Um, we know so much more about physiology and, and movement and nutrition. We've tied the research of um, activity, especially adolescent activity and academic performance, you know, not doing drugs, lower obesity rates, lower healthcare costs, people do better in school. So we have a lot of evidence and things that if sports is done right from a very young age, um, and we get people to love movement, and then we provide opportunities for them to go on whatever path they want in sports, whether it's the small number that really truly should be in sport for performance, and then the large number of people who should be in sport for participation. If we do that, it, it can be such an enormously beneficial and and healthy thing. But if we try to cram everyone in one hole, or try to make it one size fits all, or 
perhaps worse, look at the professional sports model, which is sports for entertainment, and then turn that into, well, you know, that's what I saw in the NFL game. So that's what we should be about here. And, and U sports is sports for development. Those things have very, very different outcomes and, and a very different set of rules around them. And so perhaps the worst model for youth sport is looking at professional sport. I really like that. And I wanted to just go back to what you said about developing character. And it's interesting that it is sort of this universal assumption that being, you know, for parents that being in or having your kids in sports is a character developing yeah, situation. I will say that I, I didn't say character. I said, learn skills, right? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, how to show up on time, how to right, tie yeah. your shoes. Cause I think you're absolutely right there. I mean, that yeah. is, that's really interesting and, and something I think every parent should ask themselves. Right. Like is the program your kid in actually actively trying to develop character or some of those non-sports specific skills? Um, because if not, right. then they're probably not going to learn those things. <laughs> and it should be on the website and it should be things that the coaches talk about and it should be part of the lessons, right? Not just, teaching sports specific skills. Um, it, it should be front and center. That's our advice to organizations is it should be front and center of everything you do. So people know exactly what they're signing up for. I mean, to be honest, if an organization puts right on their website, um, front and center, Hey, we're about winning and, um, your kid might pay this big fee and go on the road and not ever get in. Would I sign my child up for that? No, but at least they put it front and center and say, Hey, this is what you're signing up for. <laughs> the problem, you know, the problem is the ones who say they're about this and then do the exact opposite. Yeah. You know, I would just like to take a side diversion and do a little reality check for parents. Um, because I'm sure you have at least some rough data in your, in your mind. And that is, you know, what are the percentages of kids that go on to play high school sports and play college sports at any level and then professional sports and then back to college? How many of those kids who actually play a sport in college get money to do it? Right. And so I think I'm working on maybe, you know, data that's a couple of years old, but, you know, certainly within the last five or six years. Uh, and the NCAA produces lots of data on this and people can always, you know, just Google for, you know, percentage of high school athletes and college sports NCAA, and they'll find the exact number. But certainly, you know, we have sort of this narrowing of, of opportunities, right? Where in a community, you can have multiple sports clubs and multiple opportunities to play. But if, all those clubs feed into one high school with 3000 kids and there's 24 varsity girls soccer players, right? There's not a lot of opportunity for, for kids to make it through. And, and that's not necessarily new, you know, the bigger your high school, the less opportunities there are to play sports. I remember growing up on Long Island, I went to a big Catholic school and I remember my freshman year showing up for, for uh, soccer tryouts. And I, I loved to play baseball at that time as well. And I show up for soccer tryouts and there was like 97 freshmen. And I was like, whoa, this is different. Right. And, and so, you know, I got a spot on, you know, the JV team, like one of seven kids. And then there was 18 who made a freshman team and, you know, 70 kids went home. Right. And, and it was like, wow, like what a difference that was. Um, and what an eye opener that was and made me say, oh, I'm, I don't think I'm going to 
play baseball anymore. <laughs> I might need to concentrate on this. But that was my choice, right? Um, so, you know, so, you know, what the numbers really say is that, you know, from high school to college, every sport is different, but the the percentage on average of all the sports is only about three to 4% of high school athletes play a collegiate sport. Right. And so we have wait, a wait, massive three or 4%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And okay. I think some sports it's as high as like 12 and some it's, it's even lower, you know? Um, and, and then, you know, of those percentage, you know, most collegiate teams don't give scholarships you know, so, so I, you know, we get down to sort of the one to 2% range of people who actually might get financial aid to do so. And then when you get outside of football and basketball, which really skew the numbers, right? Because football has 80, you know, division one football has 80 something scholarships. Um, there's very few full scholarships available, you know, a men's collegiate division one soccer team has 9.9 scholarships for 24 to 26 kids on that roster. Right. And, and so when you start uh, divvying those up there, you know, the average athletic award is somewhere, I think around $12,000 a year. So um, the, you know, the, the numbers aren't really great for sports as an uh, investment with a financial return by any means, which I think makes it far more important for us to really focus on character and mentorship and positive role models and things like that. Do you think that there, that adults labor under the assumption sometimes that, you know, this is a scholarship opportunity that I can really, this, this, my child is unique enough in my own worldview that I think she is worthy of, you know, is going to get a scholarship. Is that, do you think that's, that's a belief that persists? Oh, definitely. And I mean, if we take it one step further, right, when we look at 1% of high school athletes play a collegiate sport, and then the amount of high school athletes who turn pro, right, you're now down into the tenths and hundredths of a percent, right? The the amount of high school basketball players who might make it into the NBA. And and then a couple of years ago, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation did a study where they asked the parents of high school athletes do you think your child has a chance of turning professional? And the number who said, yes, I do was around 25%. Oh my God. Right. So it's so, it's so skewed. Now this isn't to say that as a parent, we shouldn't um, believe in our kids or, or think, you know, or, or, or hope, you know, for them to follow their dreams as far as they can, but realistically in sports, right. In most sports, if you have not given them the right genes they're probably not going to make it. No offense. That's nothing judgmental. It's just, you know, it's going to be way easier to make it the NBA if you're 6'11 than if you're uh, 5'6. And there's not much you can do about that. There is this. Maybe you will in the future. Yeah, and maybe that stands in stark contrast with sort of this egalitarian, you know, universalism idea that, you know, if you just work hard enough and it's then part of the American dream that you too can be, you can have it all and train like it and you can really take on the trappings when – the, the deck was stacked the the second your parents decided to like each other. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, that's why I think, you know, when Malcolm Gladwell wrote Outliers and wrote about 10,000 hours and, you know, the, it became this whole thing of like uh, nurture, not nature. Uh, that was a very popular thing. Unfortunately, it's just not true. This is right? why there's no, you know, there's no such right. thing as the 10,000 hour rule. Then it's not to say that 
practice doesn't matter and practicing the right way doesn't matter and lots of practice doesn't matter. But the fact is someone with uh, the genetic card stacked in their favor is always going to have a leg up. Now, at the professional level, what they'll tell you is there are tons of people out there with talent and the genes to play pro uh, who don't have the right character and the right work habits to to get here. Right. So oftentimes there's, you know, most professional athletes will, will tell you that, oh, I grew up with so-and-so and so-and-so. They were better than me, but they just didn't work at it. Right. So genes is not everything either. And, and we should never take away from the amount of the massive amount of work that a professional athlete puts into his or her craft to get to that level. But the fact is, um, we can't also think that oh, well, if I just want it and put in a bunch of time, I'm going to get there because that's not necessarily true either. This is why I have married a CEO world champion. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the, um, Kelly Kelly calls those athletes unicorns um, and he takes it upon himself. Our, our daughter used to play volleyball and we would- I am the cru- I'm the John Sullivan crusher of he dreams. Cru- he crushes the, <laughs> the parents' dreams, but- um, we would go to this volleyball tournament up in Reno, which was, you know, one of those ones where people fly in from all over the place to play. The far westerns. Um, the far westerns. Yeah. And kids come up from Texas. And Kelly was sitting with some parents. And we were watching another team. And there were two 12-year-old girls on a team from Texas that were already like six feet tall. and had And had like super jacked quads and could jump like 20 feet in the air. And Kelly pointed out to all the parents, he said, hey, you know, we're in a tournament here with 5,000 volleyball players, and those are the unicorns. It should be yeah. obvious to everybody that those two girls are the unicorns. Those two girls might actually play at an, you know, the NC2A level. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing, right? Like I went to, um, I, I do uh, a bunch of work from time to time with the U.S. Olympic Committee, and I was in Colorado Springs at the Olympic Training Center um, and having, I was just having lunch in the cafeteria and the women's volleyball team was sitting next to me and they're really big, right? They're six, five, they're huge. They're incredible athletes. And, and so, yeah, I, again, you know, and my daughter's a middle school volleyball player and, um, I meet, you know, friends like, Oh, look how, you know, look how incredible she is. I'm like, yeah, she's okay for, you know, Bend, Oregon, seventh grade. <laughs> but let's not get too carried away here, you know? Yeah, so it's pretty funny. Um, one of the things that really struck me was that you, when we had the pleasure of watching you speak to all the regional, a whole lot of, a room full of regional coaches and parents, you talked about the decline in youth in sports driven by the youth. And can you talk about the number one reason or the top few reasons that kids gave for losing interest or wanting to stop playing sports? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think first of all, a lot of kids walk away when it's no longer enjoyable, right? When it's no longer fun. Since that's the number one reason they give for playing, then I have to assume the number one reason that they quit is because it's not fun. Yeah, and in, so in that list yeah. of like, uh, it was an inventory of over a hundred things. Where I forget where winning was. Oh, yeah. So this was some research from a woman named Amanda Visick uh, from George Washington University. And she did a lot of this research. It's incorporated into the Project Play Aspen Institute literature around youth sports. We've had Amanda on our Way of Champions podcast as well. And, um, you know, so she asked uh, these kids, you know, why do you play in nine out of 10 fun? So she said, well, let's dive into what makes it fun. And I think they came up with 81 characteristics of what makes it fun. 
And it was things like, you know, being with my friends and positive team dynamics and coaches who respect and encourage me and um, learning new things and the excitement of competition. Um, one of the big ones, I think it was like number three on the list was getting playing time. Right. And, and how many youth sports experiences do we see where where the quest for winning leads to, uh, sorry, you're not going to get in this game. Right. So so these are all the things that make it fun. And on that list, like you said, winning was number 48. Now, I never showed up to coach a game thinking that there was 47 things more important than winning. But, uh, you know, apparently a lot of kids feel that way. And, uh, you know, or it's not just what it's, it's not what comes to mind for them right off the bat. Yeah, it's so interesting. We we were actually talking recently about how it would just be so great if there could be like a universal rule that um, up at least until high school, uh, every kid plays in every game. <laughs> that just across every sport, the universal rule is until high school, every kid plays in every game. You know, how, well, how, think, how different would it make things? Well, I think for certainly that in in – yeah, like you're saying, sort of, you know, in high school and, you know, on the varsity level, like athletes have to understand that I'm not going to get in every game. And the chance to be part of something, even if I'm not going to play, can still be a great, meaningful experience, right? Um, You know, uh, you know, if we're asking a high school varsity soccer team to keep 26 kids, you can't get 26 kids into every game. That's insane. Right. right? And so we're always balancing playing time versus, um, you know, the flow of the game and the effectiveness of, of the game. But I certainly think in club sports where we're asking people to pay lots of money to be a part of this, if you pick them, you have to play them and they should get meaningful time. And especially at the really young ages, and this is where it really kills me is you see some eight-year-old, nine-year-old go into the game and then get yanked out three minutes later. Now, obviously, if they get injured or, or something or whatever, but like that's what, that's what kills me. And in other countries, they've figured out ways around this. So take, for example, in, in Belgium, instead of playing halves in youth soccer, they play quarters. And basically the rule is in each quarter, no substitutions are allowed and at unless a kid gets injured and at the end of that quarter every child who didn't play the previous quarter has to start and play the next one so it takes all that sort of decision making out of the hands and the pressure of that out of the hands of the coaches and say hey i got to develop all these kids cuz they all have to play at least half this game right and so now i have to mix and match and i can't just play my best kids together because then you know in the next quarter i might have to play my weakest kids together or whatever and so i have to mix and match and give them different opportunities and in belgium they talk about what a difference that has made in you know for on a coaching side is just hey look this is the rule so you know it is what it is and and what a wonderful thing that has become because it's taken that out of the equation and tells coaches hey i better get everyone ready because everyone's going to play that would be so nice that would be so sit nice sit down I with your french fries and mayonnaise yeah and just in just don't you know i can't tell you how many volleyball games we've been at where there is a parent who perceives their kid to be one of the better players and their kid gets taken out so that another kid can play and the parent is mad 
And I, I think exactly yeah. the opposite. I think, man, ever like when I see a game of a, a volleyball game where every kid gets into play, regardless of whether I perceive my kid to be the best kid, I'm stoked. I feel like it's working the way it's supposed to be working. We have a we have a pretty and especially when they're young, yeah. Yeah. We have Sorry, a pretty extraordinary no, no problem. We have a pretty extraordinary uh water polo program in our area. Um and uh it's called the Shack program and the coaches are well known and have been coaches of the year internationally and are Olympians and they literally the most senior coach coaches the youngest kids during this development program, which is like the most famous coach is on there with, you know, 10 year olds down. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they do that drives parents crazy is there are no parents allowed on the deck. And so Mm -hmm. no parents can be in the pool area. And you see some creeper parents hanging on the fence the entire time, you know, and you know, but what it does is it really creates a wall of safety where kids can be coached and the coach can run this incredible program and they just take all the parents out of it just around some of that, which I really think is yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And, and again, I, I think in this era of safe sport, we have to be very careful about what parents can and can't see. And that's a right. You can look through the window. You can, you know, watch from afar. You can see every interaction with coaches and kids, right? Because I think we, some people take that a little bit too far and there's no communication and, right. you know, and, and I, I mean, I've had gotten emails of people like coaches will, you know, give this berating explicative filled uh, speech after a game and say, now no one leaves here and tells your parents about this. That's dangerous, right? right? That's not <laughs> yeah. safe. Right. But, but certainly things like, yeah, you don't need to be on, on the pool deck and you don't need to be sitting on the sideline of every practice. Um, I mean, I, I witnessed recently just uh, as my team was getting, I'm coaching, you know, 12, 13 year old girl soccer right now for my daughter's team. And I witnessed a, a parent yelling at his daughter during warmups and he walked halfway onto the field to yell at his daughter for the way she was warming up. And I, you know, and I was like, that, you're nuts, man. Like, what is wrong with you? You know, and, and, and these are the kind of things like, you know, you've, in my book, you forfeited the right for that front row seat there. So we first became John O'Sullivan aware when we went to your talk in Marin County about a year ago. And we did a really cool uh, exercise that you led where we all took a few moments to write down the qualities about our own coaches um, that we remember. And I'm not, it was obviously really powerful and visual, but I'm wondering if you could sort of describe for our listeners what it is you do and sort of what, what you see. So the, the activity is, is a pretty simple one. And, and, you know, I think this can be used in coaching. It could be used in uh, business and leadership. And basically the question is, what are the, you know, four or five qualities of the best coach you ever had is what I ask. And and there's always people who said, well, what if you never had a good coach? And I said, well, think about your favorite teacher. What was it about your teacher that made him or her special? What was it about that coach? And then we write them down on on sticky notes, one per sticky note, a word or phrase. And then we put them up on the wall and we group them, you know, depending on the room, maybe opposite sides of the room or different whiteboards or whatever. Um, these are all the qualities that have to do with your coach's knowledge of the sport. And on the other side, here's all the qualities that have to do with connection. And these are the emotional intelligence piece and the communication and the, 
um, fairness, passion, trust, made it fun, all, all these sort of things. And then we sit back and look at them and inevitably, and I've done this activity all over the world with every sport that you could probably ever name from uh, netball to Aussie rules football to hockey, soccer, fo American football, baseball, you name it. It's usually at least 80-20, sometimes 90-10 connection over knowledge of the sport. And so I think this is one of the biggest areas where we can make a difference when we do what we call coaching education is I think the most important thing that we can tell first time coaches is your kids don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. And if you consistently repeat that mantra, show them that I care, show them that I care, show them that I care, um, you're going to connect with more kids and then they want to know what you can teach. But we've gone so down the road of, you know, sports science and periodization and, you know, you know, tactical periodization and all these different things. Um, and, and no one knows what to teach a first time coach in, in that one hour that you get him or her before you, you know, set them free with the wolves. And, and I, that's what happens. And so they try to impart all this knowledge uh, and they never make a connection. And when you don't make a connection, kids will walk away and connect with something else, which is usually like a video game. You know, we probably have a lot of coaches listening to this podcast, um, including probably some parent volunteer coaches. And I know when we went to your talk in Marin, there was a real mix. There were, you know, high school coaches along with like, you know, parents who volunteer to coach a six-year-old soccer league. Um, I love what you said about, you know, showing them that you care. What do you have any like specific advice or examples of what a, a coach at any level, whether they're just a volunteer coach or a professional coach can do to actually show kids they care? Yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, one of the best ways is, and, and obviously this is different at different ages and stages, right? So that's a vast generalization if you're coaching an Olympian versus if you're coaching, you know, that seven-year-old. Right. So I think when we start young, you know, you always remember, right, we coach a person, not a sport. And so you look in the eyes, you know their name, you know something about them that maybe goes beyond the sport. Like I, I have a, a friend who ran a youth academy in Indianapolis, you know, for 10 and under kids in soccer. And he had this great thing that, you know, he had a rule for all his coaches that no kid ever got to step on the field without being greeted by a coach, you know, by their first name, Johnny, welcome, come on on. And then number two, if a kid got a haircut and that coach didn't notice, the coach owed the kid a Gatorade at the end of the week, right? So something as little as, hey, I see that you got a haircut tells that kid that I am paying attention to you. Um, number two, you just, you know, try to make it, you know, we call these sort of rule of one comments, one one comment, one time. Um, for one player can, can change everything. So trying to find these moments of catching them being good, seeing them, you know, accomplish something they haven't accomplished before, seeing them try something and fail and acknowledging the fact that they were fearless enough to try all, all these things. Like right, it's a myth to think that kids need effusive praise for 90 minutes straight. Sometimes one comment at the right time is that's all they need to, you know, to fill their tank. Uh, I love that. And 
to follow along with Juliet's great question is one of the, th- the assumptions that we make sometimes <laughs> is that we, everyone should play sports. And then we look around and say, well, who's volunteering to play these coach, these positions. And we have really, we just, you know, any adult, we get enough emails, people saying we're desperate for coaches and Juliet, so you should coach. And I was like, I know nothing about yeah. X sport, right? Yeah, like we're sporty, mm-hmm. but we have no idea how to coach. Volunteers. I'm like, I can get any kid prepared to play any sport, but I don't think I could just necessarily coach all. I don't have a, I don't have 10,000, uh, you know, girls volleyball drills off the top of my head, but. Right. But you can spell the Google, right? <laughs> That's right. Like, That's right. You, you know, <laughs> so I mean, this is the thing in the war, in the world we live in is like, if we think about what, if I'm a, a league director, if I'm a sports director, right, and I'm looking for coaches, I have to think about if I can put this in an email and send it to someone. And realistically, in almost every sport, I, I would think, and I, you know, I'm certainly not an expert in many of them, I could send beginner coaches the right activities and say, here's your season. Do this activity on this day. Structure your practice this way. Just follow this, right? You require no thought into this. If you do these type of things, this is going to be a good experience. And let me spend my time to teach you how to communicate this better. Right. And and, that, and, and what good structure and that's is. That's the, the magic, right? So are there some better resources around the sort of meta coaching, the, the psycho personal coaching? Because that seems to be when what, what I've witnessed is a, a lot of middle-aged men who step in and they revert to type. They revert to some archetype of the experience <laughs> they had when they were youth and some tough guy act that their coach took from his coach that took from his coach. And it seems like people adopt a role instead of sort of ever having been given the resources to prepare to psychomotionally develop these kids. So how do we break that cycle? Where are the resources to put youth coaches into better driving positions because I think you're right. I think you can go onto Google and, you know, and I have done this, you know, when I became obsessed with girls, high school or middle school serving of the, of the volleyball, I watched 10,000 videos and I literally, you know, mapped that with what I understood about physiology. I'm like, good, I'm an expert in coach in, in hitting. So mm-hmm. now with that, but I'm not an expert necessarily in, in, you know, getting kids to communicate, where should a coach go if she is interested in, in, in doing this? Well, I think first of all, you know, there's some, you know, resources, certainly, you know, I think changing the game project has, you know, we have a lot of great ones right in your backyard. The positive coaching Alliance has a a ton of great resources. I think they're positivecoach.org or something proactive coaching out of Seattle has a lot of great resources as well, but I really think you know, number one, and, and we, and we see this, right. We see this, um, uh, you know, I see it every time I see, you know, someone coaching seven-year-olds and the kids are running laps, right. Or the kids are going through some, like, only cause they're bad. <laughs> no, I mean, I see them running laps to, to get in shape. I'm like, okay, so you clearly don't understand physiology or how seven-year-olds work. Right. Um, go run five you know, miles. Yeah, exactly. Or, or doing some extensive warm up without the ball. And I'm like, do you think your kids warm up for recess? No, they don't need to stretch. They don't need to do that. We can certainly teach movement, but not what you're doing and not at the expense of, you know, things without a ball or, or some sort of game interaction to get them doing this. Right. So, so, you know, I think I just, I just want to give you an amen there. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, good, good. You know, so I, I think one of the things where we're really failing the kids is the youth sports organizations that are not educating and pouring into their coaches. And 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 here's the big myth. The big myth is that if we ask coaches, ask volunteers to do coaching education, uh, we won't. We already don't have enough coaches, and we'll just have even right. fewer. And yet, I have like we just had a guy named Nate Baldwin on our Way of Champions podcast that we just released, and um, I wrote a blog about him at the end of last year. And he's from Appleton, Wisconsin, and um, they a couple of years ago. It, in the face of declining numbers in their youth sports programs, you know, set out to define some values and educate coaches and, and parents and sort of redefine what their youth sports programs were about. And now four years later, not only are their numbers up 62%, but here, here's the really cool thing. He, he told me, you know, his, his first year he got there, they had 80 youth soccer teams and he had to go actively find I think 32 coaches, right? So 80 teams and they had 30 where no one wanted to coach. And he said this past fall, um, they had 120 teams and he only had to go find eight coaches. Wow. Right. So, and, and this was by asking coaches, Hey, here's more, here's more info. You, you have to do coach education. What else do you want? What else do you want? Right. So by pouring into your coaches, you, you get them to come back by creating a sideline environment where they're not getting harassed all the time by unrealistic parents, they want to come back. So by asking more, he hasn't created more work for himself. He's actually created less work for himself because he's made it a place where people actually want to coach. One of our daughter's uh, local volleyball programs, she was in a club program before she switched sports, was part of this positive coaching alliance. One of the things that they really try to do is educate parents. And maybe this is sometimes where we're seeing the breakdown because of, you know, for example, when our kids get in the car, we really try to say three things. We're like, we had fun watching you. Did you have fun? We love you. Like, that's it. And, and because maybe Juliet and I get to work in so many professional sports and, and get to be around all these unicorns, we understand that the goal is not to have professional sport kids but kids who really like to play sports and so we just we have very I mean, maybe we have too low expectations juliet but <laughs> i read that somewhere though i mean i literally read once and i might have even been on your blog that you know when your kid gets in the car after practice the only thing you should ever say to them is i had fun watching you play period end like and i'm sure i have failed at that by the way but i do try to just keep it to that and it's not it's okay to you know say hey make sure you talk to your coach or if you have a problem i mean to support your youth athlete and, and give them shift that low side of control back to them but do you think we are doing a poor job educating parents around the goals and expectations of these things and would we have a, a general because i think it it feels like we just sort of farm this out like hey i paid my money make my kid an elite well-rounded, high-character person, I'll be over here sipping my cappuccino, right? And we need to get parents closer to the to the program without overstepping the line. Do, am I right in that? Oh, I definitely think you're, you're right. And I think when we look at it, you know, 98% of, of parents are, are great. You know, I, I have a, a friend. Uh, well, they're dedicated Jim. for sure. Yeah, they're dedicated, but they love their kids, right? right. Um, you know, there's a sports psychologist, a friend of mine named Dr. Jim Taylor. He's from out your way. And um, 
he, he said, he said to us recently, he said in 30 years of working, you know, on the psychology level with athletes and their families on, you know, multiple Olympians and everything. He said, in my experience, every parent I met loved their kids. You know, some, a lot of them do some things that are unhelpful and a very small percentage are mentally ill. Right. And, and, you know, that was his thing. And he's like, you know, I joke around with that, but, you know, I, I think what we really have to do is we can't use those really that those numbers of people who have completely lost the plot and and they are out there we can't use them as an excuse not to educate and engage with all the rest of the great parents right and and like you said that's what we have to do we have to say hey as part of this program we want to teach you how to help your kids and what are some of the things that might hurt your kids? And some people, you know, like a lot of people come to my talks and they'll come up after and say, you know, I wasn't going to come tonight because I didn't think this really applied to me, but I'm so glad that I did because I picked up this thing on, I think, like you said, Juliet, you know, the ride home. She's like, that's me in the car, you know, critiquing my son or my daughter for every play. And I've never stopped to consider what is their emotional state in that moment or um, do they even want to talk about this right now, right? And how many kids feel like the car ride home is it's a prison for them. And so things like that as, as parents, if we would just, you know, if organizations would take more time to educate parents and just say, hey, here's some big areas that if you tell your kids you love watching and play, if you let the car ride home belong to them, if you make sure that this is, you know, that they own this experience and that they're enjoying it. Um, if, if when those things are changing, you're, you know, that you're not afraid to stand up for them and say, you know what, we need a couple weeks off here, right? Because, you know, my kid is burnt out and not enjoying this anymore. These are all things that I think we have to have, you know, we we should teach parents this. And if we do, we're going to have a much more highly functioning organization. I think that's really right. And I really like the fact that, there's a lot of potential to improve the game there and the experience for our youth athletes. And I think parents don't have a script here. You know, they're just making it up as they go along. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit shocking. And I think, I mean, you know, allegorically we see that, you know, certainly people are reliving or living through the, through their children for the first time, their, their own athletic failings or inability to play, or this is their shot at, at coming back around. And there's a real chance to, to improve the ball, as it were. I, I think that's really great. And, and I hope everyone takes this home and, and delves. If you have a child playing, you can be a better parent the same way that your kid can be ready to play and be a better student. I totally agree. Oh, ex- exactly. Sorry, go ahead. Julie. No, I was just going to say, I, I wanted to, um, as we're getting closer to the end, I really want, and I felt like this was a nice segue. I just wanted to um, talk to you a little bit about specialization. We spoke to Eric Cressy in season one of our podcast about the pitfalls of it, and I'm sure you have thoughts. Um, and before we let you go, I just wanted to talk a little bit about both uh, your thoughts on specialization and then what parents can do to combat it. And before I let you go, I just want to say that, you know, even we who are, you know, fully professionally in the health and fitness field, we know better. Even we have fallen into the sort of hamster wheel, so to speak, of especially when our daughter was playing volleyball, of feeling like in order for her to, you know, stay up with the, you know, keep up with the Joneses that she had to play year round. And we definitely had to even ourselves step back and say, whoa, like we need to take a break here. So um, Mm -hmm. 
if you could talk a little bit about your general thoughts on it and then any sort of advice, thoughts for parents on how to get their kid out of that hamster wheel and not feel bad about it. Yeah. And I think, again, we can only do this through good information and knowledge, right? And so in general, as as I'm sure you you guys speak about all the time, you know, the, the research around specialization is that, you know, outside of a, a couple of sports, figure skating, female gymnastics, where those athletes reach their athletic peak very young, and there's a lot of you know, very specific movements and flexibility and strength that have to be developed prior to puberty. In, in most of our sports, this, you know, athletes peak later and most elite athletes are capable and, and usually play multiple sports up until the early teens. And all the evidence around elite athletes show that their specialization usually occurs later than the athletes who are the, um, you know, the near elite, the ones who don't quite make it. Um, and so, and yet, you know, the, the research around injuries and kids who specialize prior to 12 are, are far more likely to get injured. They're far more likely to burn out. They're far more likely to quit. So I feel this as well, right? I have middle school kids and they like some sports more than others. Um, but, you know, they still do multiple things and, and, and get out and do this because, I understand the importance of building um, a strong athletic foundation and then layering on sports-specific skills later. And right now we have a youth sports complex that lays all these sports-specific skills upon shaky foundations and kids who cannot move correctly. And they can get away with it until they hit their growth spurt and then everything starts breaking down. And so from Tommy John surgeries to ACLs to – a lot of these things, you know, people in, in, in your space could look at that athlete and go, I could have told you that would have happened, but, but we don't do this enough. And so I think this is where we have to be strong and brave as parents. And then we can balance that with the realities that we live in of, you know, like, you know, Kelly said, Hey, you know what? It doesn't, the reality of playing three sports in three separate seasons might not exist anymore. So when our kids are really young, it's the best chance for them to have a multi-sport experience to find one that there really is a good fit and they're passionate about. And then as they might have more requirements within one, be it volleyball or soccer or whatever, they still need to have a multi-movement experience within that sport. So hopefully that's coaches within that sport, training, stability, and, and, and balance and agility. But it's also things like strength and conditioning or parkour or yoga or other sort of movement training within that. And you can fit that in no matter what that schedule is so that your kid learns to move and you are working on those imbalances, especially if they're in a one-sided throwing sport or hitting sport where their body is really getting some severe muscular skeletal imbalances. You need a multi-movement experience. And if you're not doing that for your kids, you've got to figure out how to do it because it's really, really important. I appreciate that you, how you say that, that that really can come from anything. More sports doesn't necessarily beget that movement fluency and competency, but yoga, CrossFit, strength conditioning, and we're seeing people become a little more sophisticated about it. But I, I really appreciate that. I even like that you led with parkour because 
boy, jumping and landing sort of is the is the <laughs> foundation for sports. about every sport. <laughs> you know, it's it's fun to see Georgia yeah. suffered a terrible break uh, working on her backflip uh, leg break last year, working on a backflip at a trampoline, had just a catastrophic uh, tibial fracture, spiral fracture. Three months in a brace, just took right out of volleyball program. And in some ways, you know, volleyball was her love, but she has fallen in love with water polo. And we're so grateful that we were able to just, you know, we had this natural pause. And it's interesting, we um we have a rebounder in the side of our pool and our daughter is obsessed. Like she'll come home and get in the water and, you know, try to set her own personal record. So at age 13, I'm like, oh, the obsession is hit. It's self-driven, the self-directive. And I I know it's it's an al- it's a amalgamation of so many things, the coaching she's getting, the experience she's had, you know, the feedback and I'm really grateful that she had all this volleyball because it makes her really good being able to throw and catch and, and manage and anticipate where the ball's going. So you can really see how these other sports and experiences do layer in skill that sometimes you isn't obviously direct connected. Yeah, without a doubt. And so what we would call this is transfer, right? And this idea that playing one sport can transfer to another which uh, again enables that sort of multi-sport, you know, take a break from this one thing and this one team and do some things that transfer. You know, I was just watching Kobe Bryant at the Aspen Institute Project Play event last week, I think it was in Washington, D.C. or the week before, and he was talking about, um, you know, they asked him why, you know, how he got so good at basketball. And he says, growing up playing soccer in Italy, where you you looked you know in <laughs> soccer you're always aware of the th- the threes and the fours and in basketball it's usually just you and one other and so his ability to see the court he attributes 100% to playing soccer as as a youth and and so I, this is great and you know and and you know the example you give about Georgia and and, and water polo like what you're seeing there is what we are what we call engagement Right. She isn't you're not going get out, you know, drop your backpack and get out to the pool like that's her. It's so it's self-driven that she's engaged in the sport. She owns the experience. She loves what she's doing. And so she's intrinsically motivated to go out and do more when those things come together as parents. That's what we're looking for. That's what we need to embrace. And when we're not seeing that, right, if, if your kid never picks up a ball or a bat or whatever outside of practice, they're probably not really all that into it, no matter how high they jump or how fast they run. And they're probably not going to make it. Yeah. I, I mean, I just love that. I think the intrinsic motivation is so important. It's cool to see it in our own kid. Um, question for you. You know, it seems like back to the specialization thing, so many clubs are uh, on this year round model. And as a business owner myself, I sort of get it, right? Because we've privatized all sports and people are running these clubs and they need to make a living. And so the only way they can make a living is to have nonstop programs year round. And one of the pieces of advice that Eric Cressy gave to us for parents was that you should just, um, as a parent, you just need to make sure your kid is not, if your kid plays volleyball, for example, they should not play volleyball for like two to three months of the year. And that you as a parent just have to be the sort of hard stop on that. And uh, I think one of the fears parents have is that their kid will be discriminated against in team choice or whatever if their kid doesn't do everything all year round. Do you have any advice for parents on that or thoughts just in that department? Well, I, well, I think the advice from Eric Cressy is 100% 
sound, right? And it's advice that would be echoed by every orthopedic surgeon and physical therapist and sports psychologist to, (laughs) you know, to, to prevent injury, to prevent uh, burnout and all these different things. Right. And so oftentimes, you know, we have this death of expertise is that we, we look at all these true experts in the field, and then we take the advice of some other parent or what we think this other parent is doing. Right. So yes, we are, I think our primary role in sport is the advocate for the human being, the whole person, not just the volleyball player or the soccer player or the water polo player. And so when we're signing them up for programs, recognizing that, um, you know, there are other things in their life that are important. And, you know, it it's, I think sometimes parents get stuck trying to do too much, right? And so it's very frustrating as a coach when kids are running from one thing to the next to the next, and they're always missing your stuff. But, you know, if they have some other interests, and you know that they have a piano recital on this Saturday in six weeks, and you let me know, I have no problem that you're not there, right? I don't think that's a, you know, and and we have coaches who say, well, if you're not committed to this team, we'll give your spot away. And my first response to that, and I might have been one of those coaches back when I was 26. So I'm not pointing the finger um, out of innocence here. But I I think now knowing what I know, um, you know, I look at that child and and I say that's just a person with other interests what a wonderful thing and I look at a coach who says no you can't go to grandma's 80th birthday because we have a tournament and you know what I say to that parent is well that coach just basically told you what he thinks about your daughter or your son and it's that he doesn't really care right he is not invested in what's better for them and so you know He's basically just telling you, is this really the best place to play? Um, And, and, you know, he can't know your kid as well as you. So sign up and fulfill your commitments, but realize that, hey, if we have other things, and again, I've gotten emails, as I'm sure you guys have, you know, from parents who are like, you know, our coach, you know, our, 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 our oldest daughter is getting married and our youngest daughter has a volleyball tournament that weekend. The coach said that she has to come to volleyball. What should we do? And I'm like, do you really have to ask that question? Like, that's crazy. That's crazy. Well, I just want to, I'll point out one uh, example. I had a coach, my, my parents were having my, uh, my mom was remarried. They were having a little reception and I wasn't missing the reception, but the coach literally said, this is my freshman year of high school. He's like, no problem. You can play with me on Thursday or Friday. Stay with me. I'll drive you to the airport. You'll make it. Like the commitment was to solve the solution, to come up with a solution. You know what I mean? So like the coach took me into his home and I think in a sneaky way, set the hook even deeper because we watched videos. We like, (laughs) you know, we, we talked about game plans. He had me all to himself, but literally then got up at four in the morning, drove me to the airport to make it possible. And I think... I really do. That has stuck with me that the caring that the coach said, oh, this is so important. You won't miss it. I'll bend over backwards to make it make it happen. I really appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, re- I remember just a, a girl that I coached here in Bend who was she's just a wonderful athlete and she was a phenomenal soccer player, who co- probably could have been a national teamer if all she did was soccer. But she had the courage and the parents who, you know, gave her the self-confidence to say, hey, coach, like if I only play soccer, I'm going to end up hating it. You know, can you create the space for me to do this other stuff? And so 
I did. And it was amazing to me that I was always the one who gave a little bit and it was rarely her other coaches who, who, who gave an inch. Right. And so I was giving her the space, even though she was going on to play college soccer. So like this girl ended up playing PAC 12, the best conference in the country, college soccer, but yet won 12 varsity letters in high school, four for soccer, four for basketball, four for golf. And the coolest story is, you know, she's graduated now. She played a little pro soccer for a while. Um, She came back, decided to go get her MBA, went to like a division. I think it was either a division two. I think it was a division two school. Um, She had exhausted her four years of soccer eligibility. So she goes to this division two school and gets a scholarship and plays basketball and golf for one year and gets her MBA. (laughs) Like, how cool is that? That is so cool. I love that. Well, we are. She's my hero. That, she is my hero too. So we are <laughs> nearing the end of our time here. But before we let you go, um, just because we're trying to give as much practical advice to people listening to this podcast as possible, are there a couple sort of key takeaways that if you had, you know, knew there were tons of parents listening to this that they could do to just sort of ensure that their kids' sporting experience is positive and fun? Sure. Number one, be very intentional about the programs and and the coaches and the organizations that you sign them up for. If you have choices, you know, make those choices not based on, you know, how many scholarships they claim to get for their 18-year-olds, but, you know, how many 8-year-olds are still playing at 18 would be a far greater indicator of um, whether they're doing a good job for me. Um, And then number two, remember that these – you know, the, the key things to keep anyone in sports long enough are, we talked about it, right? They got to own the experience. They got to enjoy the experience and they have to be intrinsically motivated to get better. And so as a parent, those are the boxes that you should be ticking. And then just remember that this is a long, long journey and everyone goes, goes through ups and downs, good points and bad points, injuries, times where they need a break, times where they're highly engaged. And so just take the long view on this. It's not a sprint there, you know, as they say in USA hockey, you know, win the race to the right finish line. And if you do that um, in the end, you might have a a great athlete who's able to play in the next level, but at worst you'll have a a great human being and a great relationship with your kids. Well, that is just amazing. I so valuable, so helpful. Thank you so much, John. Um, before we let you go, can you let our listeners know where they can find you? Sure. I mean, I think the, you know, the, the hub, the mothership is changing the game project.com. That's where we house our blog. Um, and also links to our, our podcast, to our online courses. You know, you can find my books on Amazon, um, is it wise to specialize and uh, change in the game? Uh, the Parents' Guide to Raising Happy, High-Performing Athletes and Giving You Sports Back to Our Kids. Um, the podcast is called Way of Champions, and I do it with my friend Dr. Jerry Lynch. And then, you know, all the social media stuff. So if you just look for Change the Game Project on Twitter or Facebook, you will find us there as well. And that is Changing the Game Project. The um, I just want to say that you do such a great job of not just talking about all the problems with sports and all the horror stories, you point positive and talk about what's working a lot. And that has given me no ending of good feedback. And I have shared a thousand 
thousand of your posts with my friends. And so I highly suggest once you go deep dive, you're going to, you're going to lose a weekend. It's so worth it. But what you'll be able to do is, you know, I send them in a sneaky way to someone I think is a jerk. I'm like, Hey, you should, have you seen this? Oh, 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 it's about you. I had no idea. So, uh, you know, I think, I think it's such a sneaky way of really improving the ball and, Thank you so much for your time today. This is just wonderful, and we're we're so pleased to have uh, had the the pleasure and opportunity to connect with you. Oh, this was so fun. You guys are great, and I was it was great to to meet you back in Marin uh, in 2017. And thanks for all you do to push this giant boulder up the hill a little further. <laughs> it is the task of Sisyphus. These kids keep aging up into sports. It's terrible. John, yes. thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Ready State. If you like what you're hearing, check out all of our episodes here or at mobilitywad.com. The Ready State is the podcast of mobilitywad.com, where we've assembled the world's most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. Each motivated by the simple idea that all human beings should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under mobilitywad. That's W-O-D as in workout of the day. Till next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop it. You got it. Kelly Starrett is a New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is the co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and Mobility Wad, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it. You better stop it.